Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice and this is the Grognard Files podcast where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by my stuff. I've been digging out some old books from the archive in the attic in the hunt for more to feed the great library of RPGs, which is on my right with my grognard files. While here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll, I'll just give her a tap. Ah, yes. The Eternal Champion has appeared as Margiana from the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Her co-star was Tom Baker, who played Prince Kura, the evil magician seeking everlasting life. He gave such a good performance that it landed in the role as the fourth Doctor Who. This month I've been obsessed with Doctor Who. The streaming service BritBox as all of the programmes available, and I've been binging on them greedily. We've talked before on the GrogPod about our imaginative DNA as gamers from the 1980s. Doctor Who is another component to add to 2000 AD, James Bond, Blake Seven, and of course Robin of Sherwood. And Doctor Who was with me from an early age. I collected the target books which novelised the episodes. One time, when I went to quicksave with mum and dad for the big shop, I headed over to the chair that was near the fire door. It was blocking the exit. This was the 70s. I suppose it was the least of the safeguarding misdemeanours. But I would sit there on that chair and wait while my parents navigated the trolley around the stacked pallets that formed corridors in the supermarket. When I got to the chair, I was surprised to see another boy in my place. He was reading The Doctor Who Monster Book by Terence Dix. I really wanted that book. I would seek it high and low to no avail, taking my granny on fruitless trips to WH Smith's. When I recently mentioned on Twitter that it's taken 40 years to find a copy, one card said, why was it so hard for you to head to the shops? Oh, if you've only was so easy. We've become so overtaken by the idea that we can get anything, everything, anywhere that we've forgotten about the effort required to source specific items back then. Sometimes it would take weeks, even months, for things to reach your local area. But I'd forgotten about the Doctor Who book of monsters for 40 odd years until I found it in a second-hand bookshop a few weeks ago. A youthful Tom Baker is in the centre of the cover, surrounded by Daleks, Davros, the Silurians and Cybermen. Each one of them is a design classic. And inside, there's a description of each of the alien races and a brief reminder of the Doctor's encounters with them. Discovering it has been a personal triumph. It was certainly worth waiting for. Now, this being a nostalgia-based podcast about the games from back in the day, you'd assume that we'd be covering the 1985 licensed game produced by FASA. 
based on their Star Trek RPG, although with some differences. However, for reasons that we'll go on to discuss, Doctor Who was out of our system by that point. Neither did we get to play Doctor Who Time Lord, co-written by Ian Marsh. He talked to us about it back in episode 14. The Doctor Who, aliens and monsters that furnish their world has been an influence, an inspiration to our gaming, rather than playing in the world using licensed games. There was a certain gothic quality to the Tom Baker era that we tapped into for our games to provide mood and atmosphere for Call of Cthulhu, for example. Recently, I've started to collect the Cubicle 7 Doctor Who role-playing game. It uses a couple of clever core mechanics to emulate the television series. It also has a terrific monster book, All the Strange, Strange Creatures. In this episode, I talked to Dave Chapman, autocratic on Twitter, who is the lead writer for the line. At the time of recording, Cubicle 7 have confirmed that they're continuing the licence. Dave has just become a full-time writer, so we learn more about his formative years and an interesting insight to his design career. The first, last and everything comes from one of the Grog Squad's growing Australian contingent. Michael Butler has been playing Zell, the Stalker, in my recent Mutant Year Zero game. Here he introduces us to the first game he played, the last game and the game that means everything to him. Finally, we're in the Zoom of role-playing and rambling in the Groggle Box where we discuss Doctor Who and Pyramids of Mars. I should warn you that Eddie was beaming from his shed on Mars, and like evil Sutek, appears to have a bucket on his head, so apologies if his contribution appears a bit muted. I'll be back at the end with the usual parish notices. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open Box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forward. Our gaming of the past informs our gaming of the present and with me in the zoom of role-playing rambling i've got the lead writer from the latest doctor who role-playing game dave chapman hello there dave hi there good to be aboard (laughs) (laughs) good to have you thank you very much Now, now the first thing that we always ask when we start these interviews is what was the first game that you ever played and who are you playing with? Uh, so this is going back quite a way. Uh, this would be about 83, 84, I should imagine. I grew up in a small coastal town up near Hull. We, we were big video gamers. So I went round to a mate's house on a Saturday afternoon expecting to sit and program uh, ZX Spectrums to do light cycles. like Because that's the sort of thing that we always did. And I went round to my mate's house and he said... Uh, oh yeah, we're not doing that. We're, go, we're going to go in the, over to another house and um, we're going to try something else. And that's like so. Tag along, and half an hour later, I'm creating character in Traveller for the first time, and had no idea what I was doing. But it was sci-fi. It was early '80s, so everything in my head was Star Wars. That's fine by me. I generated the character, didn't die during character generation, which was a miracle. And from then onwards, it was like opening a 
opening a dangerous door. And can you can you remember much from that uh, first Traveller adventure that you played? I think I remember sitting with my character sheet, just listening and taking it all in and going, oh, what the hell's going on? This is amazing. But yeah, shortly after that, it was a case of, oh, I've got to do this again. So um, I kind of joined their group and it wasn't long before we were doing um, AD&D uh, RuneQuest. Uh, and then I went off and bought my first game, which was Star Frontiers. It was it was the cover that did it for me. Um, that that paint it was a Larry Elmore painting on the front, if I remember rightly. Um, yeah, and it's like first time going into the game shop and looking for a game, and which was a weird thing because Hull, um, it was like it was a secret society. Um, we went into went into Hull to the to the game shop, and a mate of mine showed me where it was, and you had to go. It was a place called Kingston Galleries um on uh, one of the roads and it was actually a picture frame as an art gallery and you went in and there was a little side door and you went above the art gallery and the picture framers and it's like completely no signs or anything like that you kind of snuck in this back entrance and above there was there was a huge role-playing game shop it was almost like you you weren't allowed to buy any unless you were sort of in yeah. the club, basically. But yeah, that's, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, speaking is disguised <laughs> as a a frame shop. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was it exactly. <laughs> so t- tell us more about uh, Star Frontiers. It's always a game that um, we enjoy playing, and uh, for people who don't know, it, it it is a really good space opera setup, isn't it? Yeah, I mean the the, the first game was the um, Alpha Dawn, I think it was. It's all. It was. It's basically science fiction D and D. There was there was no leaving the planet or anything like that. Um, you had to buy a separate the, the Nighthawks supplement before you could have spaceships and things. So yeah, it was, it was basically just ran around and shot lots of things, lots of these sapphires or something, the, yeah. the strange snake things. A friend of mine got very carried away with um, Star Frontiers and started playing it almost like oh that rock band that's in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy yeah they, they were they were doing it a bit like that so basically they were touring planets but they were all drala sites those weird blob things played an awful lot of that and then the zebulon's guide came out and changed everything so everybody had to have powered armor and stuff like that it was good fun i i, I do have a distinct memory of trying to sneak in as many movie and tv licensee things into it as possible so i i started up things like transformers and lightsabers and rubbish like that which <laughs> 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 no, completely doesn't suit star frontiers but you know, yeah little terminators i think i put in there as well lots of terminators and, and of course we're looking at doctor who so at that time were you a doctor who fan oh that's a tricky one um i have a distinct memory of watching um invasion of the dinosaurs um the john pertwee one because my mum was a big fan of um pertwee um and i remember avoiding most of the tom baker ones because it was just too darn scary for me um i just i i, I was a nervous disposition as a child <laughs> i think it's the best way to put it but um but yeah the the, the tom baker ones first time round, i i avoided because they were a bit scary for me um but a friend of mine john who um uh, was in the initial role-playing groups that we were in. He still is a massive fan. I remember him making us watch VHS bought copies and things like that of of, uh, of episodes and things like that. So he kind of filled in the details. And he was the our, um, our GM for the um, FASA Doctor Who RPG that was out in the in the 80s. 
Um, he was a big fan of the um, Hinchcliffe and Holmes sort of era. Um, so he liked everything a bit dark and spooky, basically. And he was also our Call of Cthulhu keeper. So he, we were basically playing Doctor Who like Call of Cthulhu, where um, we weren't really expecting to survive much, but it was always kind of Victorian horror sort of sneaking around with torches and getting killed. And I, I don't categorise myself as a fan, but recently I've been going back to them thanks to the streaming service Britbox, and I've been going mm-hmm. back watching them as uh, because they're all available there. And I realised that I do have a distinct memory of watching them, but I must have mm-hmm. been really, really young um, when yeah. they were broadcast. But like Invasion of the Dinosaurs, that's a really indelible memory on my on my uh, brain so it's amazing that they kind of get soaked in and uh, there's still those a reference point yeah especially that episode I that, there's quite a few people i know who have a very distinct memory of invasion of the dinosaurs and even when you look at it now it's like it's it's basically glove puppets walking down going down a little miniature version of the streets and, and it looks a bit cheesy now but it, it really resonated when you're a kid it was weird and there's a couple of others as well. I think the one I remember quite distinctly is the um, Sea Devils, mm-hmm. and uh, the Sea Devils coming out of the out of the sea. Oh, and yeah. uh, I watched that, and I thought, hey, how on earth? How on earth has that stayed in my memory for forty odd years? It looks ridiculous. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's so, in there. so iconic, isn't it? It just really sticks. <laughs> yeah. so, so you mentioned uh, the FASA. Um, version of the rules so Mm. did you play that quite a bit and how does that work i I have very very little memory of it i do own it Uh, i've got it up on the shelf behind me Um, and and it's signed by tom baker as well which is nice um but (laughs) um but i don't think i played it very much the the gm that ran doctor who was also the one that ran our star trek um game as well which is faster as well same system and i always, always remember there being extensive rules for shotguns and things like that in there and it's like that, that's not really necessary for either doctor who or star trek and like grenade scatter diagrams and things as well <laughs> no don't need any of that kind of business adventures we were playing a lot of us were playing basic companions there was a time lord involved um who was being played by a guy who we nicknamed gladys he appreciated that um and his his um his time lord was called the collector if i'm rightly but he he rarely turned up to any of the any of the meetings i think he turned up to like one in every six months so while we were playing he was always he dropped us off in the tardis let us go off doing our sneaking around and exploring and uncovering the mysteries and stuff while he just sat around on the tardis and had a cup of tea Oh, brilliant. So he was a doctor, <laughs> a doctor who outsourced the work to his assistants. Yeah. 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 He's more, yeah. more like a glorified taxi driver than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Turned up for uh, a guest star appearance every so often. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When did you start getting into um, Doctor Who as like a fandom type thing? Um, I remember tuning in specifically when Tom Baker was regenerating into um, Peter Davison. Um, which was the Logopolis sort of era sort of bits. Um, and yeah, I, kind of, I must remember, I, I watched all of Peter Davison stuff and um, Colin Baker. I kind of remember stopping when Perry left because I 
Bonnie Langford was a was a bit of a shock to the system, I think. Um, but I, I remember in all kinds of ways. Yeah, <laughs> n- nothing against her at all. But but, um, but yeah, I remember going back to it when um, Ace started up again on with um, uh, Sylvester McCoy, and um, yeah, kind of followed it from there, and then. And of course, it disappeared for a long time. I mean, I remember. I mean, people's passions for Doctor Who have always been quite strong. I used to be a, a reader of uh, Starburst, and I remember the letters page being full of anti-Adric feeling. Oh, bless him! <laughs> <laughs> Poor Adric. It, it, it's clear that you were a you were a fan of uh, science fiction uh, games. Is that true to say? And it, does that? Yeah. Uh, yeah and that and certainly licensed games as well um a lot of my favorites from the 80s were all licensed ones i was one of the few people who bought everything for the indiana jones rpg that tsr brought out i loved that game even though there wasn't even character creation and um the james bond one loved the james bond game that's that was a huge influence um and ghostbusters that was what really got me started trying to write rpgs because it was the first time i read an rpg and thought you know what this is actually quite fun to read i bet it was a bit of a blast to write um i have a very distinct memory of a big clunky electric typewriter i wrote a couple of scenarios for ghostbusters and photocopied it at the local library and then posted it off to west end games in new york and waited six months as you do for a a response. Um, I remember getting a letter back saying I could write, but they weren't going to take it because I'd used characters like Scooby-Doo and um, David Addison from Moonlighting, and they were different <laughs> different copyrights. That was kind of encouraging. I kind of put aside the, the dreams of writing RPGs for a little while, which is a bit of a shame. But yeah, definitely the, the licensed and the sci-fi ones. Oh, and the Star Wars one that West End Games brought out as well. One of my faves, that one. Yeah. Ter- terribly broken but i love it <laughs> what what is it about the licensed games that appeals to you so much you know what the setting is a lot easier when somebody comes up to you with a, a homebrewed um fantasy setting and they're trying to describe to you the the political setting setting in the background and who's in charge of which kingdoms and stuff like that i must admit i kind of glaze over most of the time and just want to get on with the what's going on but if, you, if you're playing something like Star Wars and you say you walk into a cantina and there's this, and there's a Rodian there, then you mentally, you know what the cantina looks like. You know what a Rodian looks like. You know what stormtroopers look like. Still still was a, a massive Star Wars fan for that. Uh, and we played a, a hell of a lot of that up until, um, must have been about 86, 87, when most of my gaming group disappeared off to university. And uh, I was I was left kind of with the the straggling couple of members who of our gaming group who hadn't gone off to university with, like me. Yeah, the gaming kind of disappeared and calmed down a bit when when they all vanished off, uh, which was a bit of a shame. But, but yeah, we were playing a lot of things like Star, especially Star Wars. Uh, I tried playing Price of Freedom when we we're going along with the West End Games vibe, but nobody wanted to shoot Russians, so I ended up adapting it to run it as v so they were all like aliens in disguise so they were happier with that they didn't mind shooting aliens <laughs> you mentioned that uh, your fasa copy signed by uh, tom baker is that because of your experience in retail because that's uh what mm, you, what you yeah, moved into? yeah yeah 
I, I went off to um, university and did a degree in animation. And so I'm just going to wave the um, copy hey. to you, there, uh, signed, signed by Tom. Um, and um, I did my degree in um, graphic design and animation and then ended up going into setting up my own company called Autocratic, which is my Twitter handle and things like that now still, trying to publish comics. I kind of jumped on the independent comic scene in the UK just as the independent comic scene in the UK was disappearing, um, just in time for the, the, the big boys like Marvel and DC to make their big resurgence. So I ended up going back into... Uh, into retail and I ended up working in the, the awesome bookshop that was Articus, um that was dotted about the country. Love Articus. Um And that kind of led on to me working as an assistant manager in a very nerdy shop uh, called the Television and Movie Store, which the locals affectionately call Doctor Who shop. When we first opened, we, we had um, a lot of celebrity signings to sort of promote the shop. The, the boss of the company um, knew a lot of these people from um, doing signings at his shop in London. Um, so we had Tom Baker come and sign a couple of times, um, Colin Baker, uh, Sylvester McCoy, Sophie Aldred, Nick Courtney. I have to say they're all lovely. They're all really, really nice, nice people. Tom Baker is an absolute legend. Um, I don't know if it's his monastic background because he used to be a monk before he went into acting. But he, he used to turn up and start signing at 10 o'clock in the morning. Have this massive queue outside the shop and he wouldn't stop. He wouldn't, he would, didn't, didn't need anything to drink. Didn't, every time you offer or anything like that, didn't want anything. Um, didn't stop to pee until six o'clock in the evening. And it's like eight hours nonstop. And he was absolute legend uh, every time I've seen him. And, and you've mentioned um, that you had those first tentative steps into uh, role-playing writing, and that continued, mm. didn't it? I published a, a comic that I'd written and drawn, must be 98, 99 sort of era. And a friend of mine um, called Jason um, introduced me to Conspiracy X, Eden Studios, this game of aliens and conspiracies, because he knew that I was a massive X-Files fan. So I started reading the Conspiracy X stuff, and it was just while I was doing this comics stuff. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll drop Eden a quick line, see if I could write and draw a comic based on Conspiracy X. Um, so I dropped George Vistilikos and Alex Jerkat, who used to work there, um, a line and they said yeah sure send us some stuff and see what you see what you're doing and then of course as I said the comics industry kind of wasn't looking great for the indies while I was still talking to them I thought do you want anything writing did the usual thing where it's like well prove you can write and we'll see what we can do I just read uh, witchcraft and all flesh must be eaten the um, other uni system games that Eden had brought out so I thought I'd have a go at writing a supplement for All Flesh Must Be Eaten. Uh, I was very into um, cheesy 80s slasher movies at the time as well. So I thought I'd write a supplement for them for All Flesh Must Be Eaten that was sort of turning it into slasher movies rather than zombies, which never saw light of day. But they came back and just said, well, you can write, but how would you like to do this instead? And that's when they offered me um, Terra Primate which was their um, knockoff Planet of the Apes RPG. It was basically set up a bit like um, All Flesh Must Be Eaten with multiple settings using the same game systems, but all of them had intelligent apes in them in some, some way, shape or form. 
Um, while I wasn't a massive fan of Planet of the Apes at the time, I wasn't going to pass up a writing job. So I, I swatted up quite a lot and watched everything I could get my hands on. Um, and that led on to helping them doing some playtesting and advice on Buffy and Army of Darkness. Then I finally convinced George that Conspiracy X, which I still really liked, didn't have the same game system as their other games and managed to convince George to let me uh, redo Conspiracy X using Unisystem. And what is the Unisystem? You, you, you must appreciate that. I was in a deep freeze between 1988 and uh, 2010. So anything <laughs> that happened in that period, I have no idea what happened. Unisystem's the dream of um, CJ Carella, who um, used to write for Palladium. It's it's kind of like a little bit more generic uh, version of World of Darkness's storyteller system. Basics of Unisystem. And then there was a, like a cinematic version of Unisystem, which had trimmed off a lot of the excess and sped it up a bit and added like um, a drama point, a hero point currency, um, which they used for the more action-y games like Buffy and Angel and Army of Darkness. So let's uh, bring it up to date with Doctor Who. Cubicle 7. So people who don't know this uh, system, how, how would you pitch it? How would you explain it? It's fairly quick and cinematic, I'd like to think. The Vortex system is what we've called it because we wanted to do something that was a bit of tie-in. It's kind of quick, uh, I suppose. There's um, six attributes, 12 skills, traits, uh, qualities and drawbacks and types of things, and a story point system which allows you to bend reality a bit in your favor and to basically keep you alive more than anything else i think the thing that stands out with most people coming to the system is the um, initiative system for it because we wanted to try and do something that really made it feel like doctor who and so the initiative systems designed so that the fighters always go last so if ever there's a, a combat brewing or a standoff against some some bad guys, the talkers always get to go first to try and talk your way out of it or to calm the situation down. Um, and then next down the list, you get people who are moving. So the runners, the people who are running away or running through route through a fight and out the other side, they get to go next. Um, people who are doing things like trying to activate the force fields or shut the doors to stop the fight from happening, they get to go next. And then finally, in fourth place, are the people who are actually going to start shooting each other. So that that's to emulate the Doctor Who thing where yeah. running away, closing the door is uh, yeah, often or, the best or, option. Yeah, Or trying to bluff your way out with a jammy dodger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other thing is, is that it's got a success ladder, hasn't it? So it's not a binary, it's a target number that you're aiming for, but it's not a binary success fail, is it? There's no. like, different grades of success. Yeah, depending on how well you roll, you can either get a pure success or you can get a success with something else beneficial happening or you can get a success with which isn't quite as good, something not that you were hoping for happens at the same time. And the same thing happens in the fails as well. So while you can fail, you can have a really bad fail or a normal fail, or you can fail, but something happens in your favour. So it's not quite as bad as you thought it was going to be. Well, what struck me about it is that it's pitched at 
new to role role playing, isn't it? It's very much. It feels to me that it it, it would be appealing to Doctor Who fans who want to try out role playing for the first time. That's certainly mm. how the uh, the the text is pitched, isn't it? Yeah, that that is a bit of a, a hangover from reading Ghostbusters and from CJ Carella's writing for the Buffy RPG. I wanted it to be um, kind of fun to read rather than it being a laborious role, um, rule book. And I, and I must admit, um, the, the gaming group that I started with all those many, many years ago, I'm still very good friends with. Um, and we've started playing AD&D again, first edition, um, over discord and chats and things like that and going back to those rule books it's like how did we ever manage there's a kid <laughs> looking at them it's these are really it's like reading stereo instructions uh, and i i love those games but they they involve some hard work sometimes i want to actually read something and have have fun reading it <laughs> so that's probably where what, what why ghostbusters appealed to me so much all those many years ago and it's a very attractive book as well, isn't it? So the BBC uh, must have given licence to use loads of um, images from from the series. Oh, yes. Yeah, they've, they've, they've um, access to their style guides and loads and loads of Im- their image database, which is always very, very nice. So, yeah, it's, it's always nice to get some nice glossy images in there. <laughs> so, so I need your help, uh, Dave. On Sunday, mm. I'm running yes. my first game. Okay. And, and I've decided to go for the uh, John Pertwee era. Awesome. Cool. You know that period when he's um, marooned on Earth, oh, the yes. TARDIS is stuck? Yeah, great stuff. The only thing I've got, and you need to help me with this, because I, the thing I'm struggling with is how to make it interesting for a party that's got Doctor Who in it for everybody to inv- be involved. Mm-hmm. So the idea I've got is, for some reason... Um, the unit base has been invaded. They don't know why. And th- the only thing that's happened is there's a school next door mm-hmm. and it's the 70s and they br- it's bring your own toys to school day. <laughs> and so all the kids' toys uh, turn into autons, right? That sounds ace. I like okay. it already. <laughs> and, my, and my next reveal, my big reveal... Is that the headmaster is the master? Excellent. Right. So <laughs> you but, can have that nice, um, nice the strokey beard moment. Goes actually, I'm the headmaster. <laughs> <laughs> I've got these three things, but how do I make that work within the game? I've never run a game where there's like an iconic character involved you know so one of the players is playing an iconic character like doctor who there's a similar problem that was addressed in the buffy rpg where you have somebody who's a lot more powerful than the rest so that's hopefully the story points in in the who game should balance their capabilities out so every the the people who aren't the doctor are, are suitably capable of doing their own thing basically the tricky thing is going to be fine hoping that your player can do a good Pertwee impression uh, always, always good Pertwee's slightly grumpy isn't he they're all slightly grumpy but he, he's grumpier than I remember what, who, who are the other characters you've got the Brigadier in there somewhere yeah I've got the Brigadier Benton but excellent although it doesn't really fit my mm-hmm. player has argued for Sarah Jane although I think it should be Joe Grant but <laughs> he's, he's insisted that it's Sarah Jane so I've 
conceded that you can have Sarah Jane. Yeah, got to got to have Sarah Jane in there, though. Yes, no, no, no offense, to Joe Grant, because <laughs> another, another another person who's come and signed at our shop as well. She she was awesome. Katie Manning's lovely, um, but um, I think it's going to be a case of how comfortable are you with splitting the party? Are you all right with doing? Yeah, it? I'm, I'm I'm perfectly fine with splitting the party. Yeah, <laughs> this sounds good. Oh, in that in that case, it's going to be a, um, you'll need to tie up the the doctor doing something else at the same time and then you can have um if you have something initially weird then sarah jane can go off and do the investigating to start off with uh especially if it's yeah she can sneak around the school bit and then she can call unit in when there's a problem that's a, that's a good idea that because that does happen, doesn't it? That the the doctor is distracted by he can be fixing the TARDIS or doing something. Yeah, yeah it's all that. Oh, I've, ju- I've just got to experiment on this thing. I'll <laughs> I'll do some I'll do some research. You you go off and amuse yourself. So in terms of threat, again, that's something I'm struggling with because normally you would present players with a dilemma or mm-hmm. with a um, physical threat that they would then combat. But clearly in this, you need something that they can interact with. So what what are the options with, with, with that? What what have, you, what have you found that's worked? Well, you've, you've got animated plastic um, toys, which is a great start because it, it, that gets over the, the whole um, trying not to be violent and killing things problem because it's just animated plastic. You can go crazy. <laughs> but at the same point, um, they're not going to be easy to destroy by shooting at them so you can get all the unit soldiers in there and in waves shooting at these toys driving around and things like that but it's not going to have too much of an effect until they're actually completely destroyed you have to make sure that the kids aren't about so you have to make sure the kids are safe so they don't get caught up in unit crossfire as well so yeah it's mostly going to be a case of the players having to make sure the public and the kids and the teachers who aren't the master stroke <laughs> beard, um uh safely out of the way um they can they can deal with all that kind of business you send in uh npc um unit soldiers who can be doing some shooting and stuff in the background while the doctor and companion is uncovering where they're being controlled from because that's always the thing it's always the whatever's controlling and animating the autons so yes. they can try and find what's what's causing that and interrupt the s- signal and uh, and destroy all that and foil the master i thought of um, one of the kids has brought something to the uh, show and tell table and got it on you know on the science table and it's sunk oh yeah the, the the nesting consciousness yes the nesting consciousness they found it on the park and brought it into school yeah that's... oh yeah excellent because <laughs> they, they they come down in strange little um football type things don't they so so yeah, yeah just find one of those and just go oh yeah i'll bring this because look it's cool and yeah that would be great <laughs> excellent i mean i'm intrigued to find out how it goes do you play regularly with your group because you say you play uh dnd but do you find yourself playing doctor who quite regularly well i don't play an awful lot with the the old group from from years ago that's kind of like one one uh meeting every couple of months when we can all organize because we've kind of split off to different corners of the globe so trying to coordinate a, a, a discord call between america uk and australia is kind of kind of tricky so 
there's always somebody who has to be up at the middle of the night. Uh, but my main game is uh, we do a weekly game with uh, my wife and a couple of friends as well over over Skype. Um, we've just finished a rather epic uh, Tales from the Loop game, um, which lasted over a year, um, where our characters got old enough that we went into playing things from the flood. We tried to stop the apocalypse and it completely failed. Um, and so we ended up playing Mutant Year Zero with the same characters uh, in the same setting um, in like a post-apocalyptic um, landscape of the loop with um, time-travelling bubbles and strange crab people, which was rather gross. Um, but that was that was huge and epic. Um, but now we've gone back to playing Star Wars again. Uh, but we're using the Fantasy Flight version, the, the the more recent version of Star Wars now with the with the weird dice. I always find that it's like uh, reading tea leaves. Those like dice, <laughs> you throw them and mystically mean something if you interpret <laughs> them. Yeah. It's great. It's, it's like oh well, I've 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 failed, but I've got a triumph out of it. So I didn't actually succeed, but something great has happened. <laughs> and then you can just see this look of despair on the on the gm's face is got to try and work out exactly what happens from that single dice roll and it's been an exciting couple of weeks for you because you're no longer working in retail that's right isn't it no no after after 20 20 years of it um i uh i'm now officially full-time at cubicle seven which is quite a, a scary thing mm. I'm, I'm officially a producer there now i'm um producing stroke line developing doctor who and um, some other things as well, possibly in the future, uh, but mostly Doctor Who um, and building up to um, a second edition, which um, I can't really say an awful lot about, except that everything that you've already got is completely compatible with it. So don't worry. And what's the process when you when you get a big license like uh, this? What's the process? Do you have to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the setting <laughs> and uh and 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 the program or does that help or does that hinder it it helps the only thing that's that's tricky the trickiest thing i think is coming up with adventures for it and and i am notoriously bad at coming up with adventures for any game that i'm playing never mind doctor who because everything's been done and Mm. there's so there's so many episodes already there's so many books and big audios and the comics and everything like that there's so many stories in there and then I, I i think to myself i can't think of anything new to do and then we get these submissions coming from the from our freelancers and the other authors and i just sit there going how did you come up this is brilliant yes um so we've got some we've got some fantastic writers on board for it and there's some adventures that they've submitted and i'm just sitting there going this is fantastic i'm i'm, I'm really impressed and i would never have thought of this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It, that, I think that is the challenge because you think that uh, setting or, or something like a Doctor Who is ideal for role playing. That you've got the mm. whole of human history, the whole history of the cosmos, histories mm-hmm. that haven't happened yet um, yeah. available to you. But but somehow, like I, like I was saying, sitting down to try and work out something, I found it strangely inhibiting. It's just a knack and and, and letting it all flow. I noticed uh, when the first box set came out, 
God, this will have been like 2009, I think now. There was a fantastic adventure that um, Alastair Stewart, who does a lot of podcasting and stuff like that as well, he did this great adventure called Arrow Down that was in the original box set. And you can, I think you can still pick it up as a free PDF on drive through um, which was, um, which was Autons again um, mm. in a seaside town in Yorkshire, if I remember rightly. And it was like all the waxworks and things like that were turning into the monsters and stuff. And it's a great adventure. And uh, I've heard about three or four different accounts of how their adventures have gone. And every single one of them has been radically different. Really, really, really different. And so some people have said, oh, I ne- never used, needed to use a story point in it. That was like, it was, it didn't do anything except talk. And other ones where people were saying that it was like frantic characters getting almost killed, left, right, and center. <laughs> so yeah, it, 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 it's all completely random. But yes, it's great. <laughs> but then I, I had that same issue with James Bond. I was a massive fan of the James Bond RPG. And I ran For Your Eyes Only the um adventure for that must have run that about three or four times for different people and every single time it's it's been radically different the good thing about doctor who as well is it's got iconic monsters and aliens hasn't it that oh yes it part of the pleasure is going through the uh, book isn't it of uh and just trying to work out how you could fit them into a story that's probably the, the trickiest thing with designing it was trying to emulate the way that they are in the series because a lot of the monsters and the bad guys in Doctor Who, they're a single shot and they'll kill you. Uh, it's like one zap from a from a Dalek and you're a glowing blue skeleton and that's it, you're out. So trying to have that in the game while not being a complete total party kill every time you're playing it, <laughs> which is which is which is why the, the talkers go first. And then you've got if all else fails, the story points kick in so that you manage to duck out the way at the last minute and sort of sprain your ankle as you do so. But yeah, yeah, that that is quite a tricky bit trying trying to get that emulation from the series. Yeah. Of course in the seventies, all you had to do to avoid the Daleks was run upstairs, wasn't it? Oh but yeah. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. They're flying everything. They're flying everything. If you if you were uh, it, when when you look at those um, those monsters, which are the which are your favourite, and which are the ones that you like uh, playing with and putting into your games? I really like some of the, the ridiculous old classic ones. I, I love the Silurians; they're always fun, and, and I think the Sea Devils really need to come back in the series because they, they they were really, as you say, really iconic, and you still remember that whole scene. And they they've just been neglected since. I think I'd like to see them come back, but they're they're always good fun. And he used to really like the Zygons as well, but I, I'm not not so keen with the way they've gone with the, the whole peace treaty thing that was going on in the Capaldi era. It kind of took away the the feeling of threat from the Zygons, and they were they were great classic rubber rubbery monsters if ever there were some. So they're, they're always great to bring into the, into any game because they're, they're so easily recognisable. So I've asked you what your favourite monster is. And um, to finish, I'm going to ask you, what is your dream team? If you could convene the dream team of doctors and assistants, who would be who would be on that team? <sighs> Can I have more than one doctor? <laughs> well, I will allow that. I will allow okay. that. Yeah. Okay, so if, if it's a multi-doctor story, it would have to be Eccleston because he's my favourite, just because he's, he's fab. 
and probably the current Doctor as well, Jodie Whittaker, because they've both appeared on stage together and they can be both be good northern like me, <laughs> yeah. which would be grand. Companion-wise, I, I have a real soft spot for um, some of the old classic ones. I, I, I got back into watching Doctor Who with Tegan and Nyssa era, Mm. Uh, which was which is always fun because because Tegan was always really really grumpy and argumentative all the time. She was great, um, and um, Ace was always a great laugh as well. And of course, and and Sophie Aldred's lovely as well. She did a signing for us at the shop as well. She's she's fab. Um, but yeah, her hitting um, Daleks baseball bats. You can you can never forget that, can you? That's just great stuff. So yeah, I think think we'd have to be uh, definitely bring Ace back. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dave, thank you very much uh, for joining us, and the best of luck in your new career as a full time writer. Thank you very much. It's it's kind of scary, and I still can't quite get to grips with it mentally that I'm actually doing this. It's like uh, twenty years of of being in retail and writing in the evenings or at weekends and things like that. Uh, and now this is my day job, which is really weird. Yeah, thank you very much. It's great stuff. Yeah, thank you. This is Free Trader Beowulf calling anyone. Mayday, Mayday, we are under attack. Main drive is gone. Turret number one not responding. Mayday. Losing cabin pressure fast. Calling in on. Please help. This is Free Trader Beowulf. Mayday. G'day everyone. Michael B here and this is my first, last and everything. The first game I fell in love with was Traveller. That front cover captured my imagination and has had a hold on me ever since. But the first game I played? Maybe this will ring a bell. Rules for fantastic medieval war games campaigns playable with paper and pencil and miniature figures. Yep, Dungeons and Dragons. Let me explain. I got started in role-playing thanks to my big brother David. He was a keen wargamer and a member of the Parramatta Wargames Club here in the suburbs of Sydney, Australia. David played board games and miniatures. The miniatures led him to Chainmail and Chainmail led him to D&D. He was also a big sci-fi fan, which led him to Traveller. I still have those two boxed sets, one black, the other white, each with three little books in them. They're two of my most treasured possessions, battered and beaten after more than 40 years, but still full of wonder and adventure. I had plenty of lonely fun with those two, as well as with Metamorphosis Alpha, AD&D, Thieves Guild, and even Boot Hill, the first RPG I ever bought with my own money. I made character after character, daydreaming about the adventures they'd have, or in Traveller's case, daydreaming about getting someone out of character generation alive. Fast forward to my first year at high school. I heard that one of the lads in another class was looking for D&D players. Well, I knew all about D&D. I was in like a shot. We used to play in the library at recess and lunch. Other than playing a thief, I don't remember much about those early sessions, except for a wilderness encounter gone terribly wrong. We were getting torn up by an owlbear, and it all came down to a fighter needing to roll a 20 to hit it. The room went quiet. The die hit the table. 20! We hit it! We leaped to our feet, shouting with joy. Until the librarian, Mrs. Barnett, came in and told us to please pipe down because other people were trying to study. I mean, we've all been there, right? After that, the floodgates opened. I saw an ad for champions, probably in Dragon or Space Gamer, 
And despite not then being much of a comics reader, I loved the idea of punching people through walls, making presence attacks and rolling big fistfuls of dice. That game ran on and off, all the way through high school and into university. It even changed hands when I went to the USA for a year as an exchange student. But back to school. I loved running games and we couldn't get enough. TFT and GURPS, not to mention Ogre, GEV, Car Wars, Kung Fu 2100, even Globo and the Exploding Children gave us endless hours of fun. Traveller, Swordbearer, TMNT, Paranoia, Toon, Tunnels and Trolls, we played whatever we could get our hands on. I'm still gaming with Mal and Gary and Stephen, the limey, from high school. Lifelong friends, thanks at least in part to gaming. Out of school, the games continued. In the US, I spent my weekends hanging around the local game store in Des Moines, Iowa. One of the employees there was Merle Rasmussen of Top Secret fame. A lovely bloke, very quiet and very, very funny. And a highly underrated game designer, as I'm sure Dirk and Blythe would agree. Back in Australia and into the 90s, we played Star Wars, Rifts, Call of Cthulhu, Feng Shui, Deadlands, Shadowrun, Cyberpunk, Torg, Dark Conspiracy, Mega Traveller, Traveller 2300, Castle Falkenstein, Space 1889, and inevitably the World of Darkness games. For two years, I ran a vampire campaign that included the lovely Dina, then my girlfriend, now my wife. It was set in Seattle, and I spent hours and hours creating all the clans and factions. It was largely a sandbox game, but there was an overarching storyline about a rising threat, the Anarch Free States to the south. Incidentally, Dina and I visited Seattle while the campaign was running. I won the draw for a trip after buying Pearl Jam's second, and many would say best, album. We saw the band, took in all the sights, and even visited the Vogue, her character's nightclub. Life imitating art? I proposed to her not long after the trip. I thought about doing it while we were away, but decided not to. No ring and all that. But sometimes I do think I missed a golden opportunity. I also ran, for nearly two years, a mage game with the old high school crew, plus some new friends from uni. I was a very earnest philosophy student back then, so naturally, I found the game irresistible. I recall long conversations about the nature of reality, coincidental versus vulgar magic, and what the technocracy was really all about. Great stuff. Through my university years and a little beyond, I worked at Napoleon's Military Bookshop, which was one of Sydney's biggest gaming stores. I met lots of great people, including my good friend Guy, another lifelong gaming buddy. He and I got into Heavy Gear, DreamPod 9's Mecha RPG, and Tribe 8, their post-apocalyptic fantasy slash horror game. In fact, we helped playtest Tribe 8 and ended up writing a couple of supplements for it. When one of the developers moved to White Wolf, we ended up writing for Kindred of the East End Vampire Dark Ages. Check out Iberia by Night, The Killing Streets, or The Road of the Beast for a taste. I was writing for local and US gaming mags, and for a couple of years, Dina and I ran Sidcon, Sydney's Easter long weekend role-playing convention. I was writing high, loving my games and loving the fact that I was getting involved in the industry. But then I just kind of stopped. I mean, who knows why we go into the deep freeze. I could probably cite the usual suspects, burnout, work, marriage, attempting to act like a grown-up, but yeah, frankly, they all sound pretty lame, don't they? Regardless, by the turn of the century, I was in the freezer, and there I'd stay for another 20 years. The last game I played, depending on when you listen to this, was either Warhammer or Forbidden Lands. Strangely, I was never that big on fantasy early on. I leaned more towards sci-fi, urban fantasy, and uh, superheroes. But my daughters cracked me out of the deep freeze by asking me to run some D&D for them, courtesy of Stranger Things. And I've been on a, pardon the pun, fantasy trip ever since. Warhammer, as I'm sure we all know, has a highly detailed setting and a highly detailed rule set. 
I'm running the Enemy Within campaign with Ron and Nick and Jeff, mates from an online Destiny clan, and Dave F, a fellow Grog Squatter. As a side note, Dave produced a Vert fanzine last year. He posted it to the Discord, but if you've not yet checked out, you really should. It's a belter. Anyhow, Warhammer has been terrific fun. We've just finished Shadows over Bergenhafen, and I think the crew at Cubicle 7 have done a great job of expanding and polishing a classic campaign. That said, it does show its age in places. It's not a railroad, but it's highly structured and highly plot-driven, and quite often things just happen to the players. And no spoilers, but I had to make some repairs on the fly to keep the Bergenhafen investigation moving. And when the climax came, it was more of an anti-climax because, well, they'd foiled the evil plot, and the big bad thing that was going to happen didn't happen. So I put together what I hoped would be a satisfying final confrontation, but to be honest, it didn't feel quite as epic as I'd wanted. Anyhow, now they're at large on the rivers of the old world, with a newly acquired Marienberg Falcon theirs to command. Death on the Reich awaits. Forbidden Lands, on the other hand, is a completely different kettle of fish. A much more primitive world, and a much simpler rule system, although it's not without crunch if you want it. I really like the Year Zero engine. Free League does a great job of keeping the very solid core mechanics intact and then customising the different subsystems willpower, stress, recovery, conditions, bases of operations to fit each setting. The Raven's Purge campaign, like all Forbidden Land scenario material, is completely plot free. The book gives you the relevant history, key players, artifacts and locations, and that's it. The players are free to do whatever they want, but they could conceivably never engage with the campaign proper. I've been running it as written so far, but I think I'm going to put a timeline and some external events in place to drive the story. I'll also beef up the roles of some NPCs to help move things along. The players are really enjoying it so far, but as it stands, it feels like an episodic TV show with no season arc. I do more prep for it than Warhammer, despite Forbidden Lands claiming it's a low prep game, which does sometimes give me fits, but there's an awful lot to love about it. From the elves being sky rubies from outer space to the dwarves who believe they're god, huge, has commanded them to literally build all of creation, the familiar fantasy races feel fresh and interesting. It's a terrific game, beautifully produced, and I highly recommend taking it for a spin if you get the chance. Finally, the game that means everything to me is Tribe 8. I keep finding myself drawn back to DreamPod 9's take on a world that has suffered a spiritual apocalypse. The game uses DreamPod 9's silhouette system, which appeared in all their games, customised to suit. What I really like is the way it differentiates between skills and attributes. Skills tell you how many dice to roll, while attributes give a bonus to the result. So a veteran with a lot of dice will be very consistent, while a hotshot rookie with a high stat will have results that can swing from one extreme to the other. You might go from being zapped in the bum by a training remote one minute, to blowing up the Death Star the next. But more importantly, the setting is unique and in places, I think, quite brilliant. Mankind's apocalyptic spiritual crisis is never fully detailed, after all it happened in the before times, but our psychic and spiritual agony allowed the Zabri to enter our world. We are physical beings that can occasionally touch the spiritual, the Zabri are the opposite. When they arrived, the Zabri were welcomed, as angels or sometimes as devils, but most were soon overwhelmed by the raw physical sensations they'd never before experienced. They started across in great numbers, coming through the fold that separates our two realms. Only a few enlightened humans and Zabri, working together, were able to stop the flood. They did it by closing the fold, the barrier between the physical and the spiritual realms. The Zabri were now trapped here, and they went mad. They herded humanity to camps where they used this for sport and pleasure. Eventually, eight Fatimas, 
Avatars of humanity's dreams arose in the camps, clothed in bodies of scrap and bone, and let a revolt against the beasts. One, Joshua the Ravager, was killed storming the Zabri fortress, but it was foretold that his tribe would lead humanity to its destiny. PCs are typically the fallen, outcasts who the Fatimas have banished from the seven tribes. Now they gather as the eighth. There were also options to play keepers, techno-smiths who hid in the ruins but were never in the camps, squats, humans who roam the outlands, or even members of the seven tribes. Instead of magical mutant powers, Tribe 8 has synthesis, the ability to connect to the river of dream. The Fatimas told the tribes that they were the source of humanity's connection to the river, but the fallen can use synthesis too. So perhaps the connection comes from within. Or perhaps the Fatimas were lying all along. The Zabri equivalent is the opposite, sundering, which allows them to affect the flesh. So the stage is set for Cronenberg-esque body horror, political intrigue, combat and exploration, spiritual and mystical journeys of discovery, and more. Why is it my everything game? Mostly because of its themes and tone. It's an apocalypse born of human weakness. It wasn't science gone mad or a meteor strike or the dead rising from their graves that brought us low. It was our own inability to find meaning in our world and our lives. Even our saviours, the Fatimas, reflect our fears and insecurities, our rage and our desire to dominate and control every bit as much as they reflect our love, compassion and understanding. Then there's the fact that sealing the fault has thrown the cosmos out of balance. The universe is coming apart at the seams because the souls of the dead can't pass through the fold anymore. Reality itself is at stake. Mankind has authored all this misery and destruction. To save the universe, we'll have to fight. Fight our oppressors, fight our saviours, and even fight ourselves. They're big ideas and big themes for a big game, and I love it. I ran a session at last year's Grogmeet, and something tells me I'm still not quite done with it. And that's me. I love chatting about games, so hit me up on Twitter at mb underscore thinkabout if you fancy. It's been great fun looking back, and I've realised that, deep freeze notwithstanding, gaming has been a huge part of my life. I'm still gaming with Mal and Gary and Limey from high school. Still gaming with Guy, who's played in most of my big campaigns, and we've even got a new writing project going. And most importantly, I'm still married to Dina. Then there are the new friends I've made through gaming. Dave, who's in my Warhammer campaign. Dirk and the Mutant Year Zero crew. I play Zell, the scout. All my online convention teammates. And of course, all of you, my brothers in arms here at the Grog Squad. Which brings me back to my brother David. He died in the 90s, and thinking about it now, maybe that's part of the reason I stopped gaming. But he opened a door for me 20 years before that, and I ran through it. Now that door is open again, and it means the world to me. He's not here anymore, but I feel an echo of our friendship and our love whenever I'm at the gaming table. It was a wonderful, wonderful gift. Thanks, big brother. I owe you one. Grogglebox. And welcome to Grogglebox, part of the show where we watch a program together and uh, discuss it and i'm in the zoom of role-playing rambling i've got uh, blithy with me hello blithy hello Doug. and i've got eddie with me hello there ed how's life in the shed it's getting warmer winter's over so and we're here to uh, look at doctor who and uh, p- particularly pyramids of mars we'll go on to that in a moment but it, when you think of uh, doctor who you've got james bond the beatles the queen and doctor who as our <laughs> cultural exports around the world aren't they that's uh it, it you don't get more british than uh than that do you <laughs> doctor who's the best one of all those well the beatles maybe i don't know I doctor who definitely 
You see, I've always said to myself that I'm not particularly a Doctor Who fan, but on reflection, I I, I was, because when I was uh, younger, when I was a, a kid, I was obsessed with Doctor Who. You know, I collected all the Weetabix cereal packets with the little cards in. I'm not sure whether I've saw some of these episodes or whether I read them because I used to collect the little books, you know, the little target book. Yeah. I think you, you got one from Great Legal Library, didn't you? I did, yeah. You never, to, you never took it back. I think the fine on it is, is huge. <laughs> <laughs> you had to put that on public record, didn't you? I don't know, statute of limitations and all that. I don't think it's much, you know. Have you still got it? Well, Doctor Who and the Curse of the Paladin. No, no, I haven't got have that. Still got I it? have not got it. No, I've not got it. Never seen it, officer. But yeah, you, used but- to, you used to proudly show me it and say, they want this back. They want this back. I'm not giving it a back. Well, that, that's the thing with the novels, because when they were broadcast, you'd never see them again, would you? You know, we have this uh, assumption now that everything's available all of the time. But mm. but they, they they were just put out, weren't they? And you, if you missed it, you missed it. If you went on holiday for two weeks, you'd look uh, out of it, wouldn't you? It's particularly the uh, Pertwee ones. I cannot... I don't, I don't know whether Doctor Who and the Green Death, I actually saw it when it was on. As I say, whether I read the book of it. Well, you, you see it through rose-tinted spectacles because some of the Pertwee ones I uh, have, have memory, vague memories of them being classics and brilliant. I remember, um, I remember watching the Sea Devils and the, the invasion of the dinosaurs, and I was at primary school, and I remember thinking they were they were just the best things I'd ever seen. And when you rewatched them, <laughs> the, the, the special effects, so if if you can call them special effects. They're terrible, aren't they? The Sea Devils. The Sea Devils is quite, it's quite boring. I rewatched that recently. It's a bit dull, but my memory of it as a child was there were there were scary things coming out of the sea. I I have this theory that Doctor Who monsters from the seventies, they're both ridiculous and terrifying. <laughs> so you take yeah, something like the yeah. Sea Devils, it looks like just like a rubber mask, but there's something about those dead eyes, isn't there? Those those yeah. dead black eyes. That's yeah. terrifying. That's an adult looking back though, isn't it? As a kid, you saw that and it was quite scary. It's a stuff of nightmares. It is a stuff of nightmares, that dead face with mm. it just holding up its little uh, tin can. Well, the best example of that is is the Daleks, the classic Doctor Who monster that, that are at the same time terrifying and ridiculous. If ever there was a monster that is terrifying and ridiculous, it's the Dalek, isn't it? Because it's essentially like a dustbin or a pepper pot that shouts at people, and on paper that should be ridiculous, shouldn't it? But it's actually terrifying. Yeah. I can I can remember. Well, I remember going to the Doctor Who exhibition in Blackpool as a kid. I mean, it was amazing. All the all the monsters were there, all the models, and they had two Daleks in a cage in an area that was caged off and these Daleks were moving around obviously on some kind of automated program moving around shouting exterminate and I, I was must have been about seven and I thought the cage was to keep them in I I didn't think I didn't think that the cage was to which the cage was clearly there to stop unruly children kind of children who might steal a library book climbing over and running in wasn't it that's what it was really for keep them in there they were terrifying, but as you say, equal, actually, slightly ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Can't get up the stairs. I know they can fly now. 
Well, in those days, they didn't fly. You couldn't get up the stairs. That, that exhibition in Blackpool was amazing. Did you did, go to? Did you go to that Ed? Did you ever go to the one in Blackpool, the, the Doctor Who exhibition? No, we don't have any money. I've heard of it since, but uh, I don't think we. My dad wouldn't have taken me there, or my mum. Never in a million years. In the seventies, it was a big thing, wasn't it? Well, it's I bloke, bloke dressed bloke just as a zygon outside or something. Yeah, it. yeah. That that was like the highlight of my. I didn't know you then. That was the highlight of my yeah. life. That meeting a zygon at the door because. Yeah. At break time, I used to play uh, a Zygon by turning my snorkel jacket inside out to get the orange <laughs> side in and, and zipping it all the way up so you look like a Zygon walking around the school playground with my arms out. You probably look more like a, more like a Zygon than the Zygon, actually. It's probably a better <laughs> costume, to be fair. <laughs> Did you have many friends? Not many, no. It did uh, continue the uh, exhibition in Blackpool for quite some time. And uh, going back to it is quite sad, isn't it? Uh, when, when, before it closed, uh, I, I got I went to it. Um, must be about 20 years ago now. But all those uh, latex monsters have kind of started to decay. And uh, Well, I, yeah, I was once at a work conference in Blackpool. And I was, see, this is the thing I'll admit to. It's probably more serious thing to admit to this than the library book. I was at a works conference and I got so bored in the afternoon. I thought it was in Blackpool. It was a hotel in Blackpool. I thought, do you know what? I'm going to bunk off and go to the Doctor Who exhibition. And, and when I got there, it was, it was possibly more depressing than the, the work conference. It wasn't quite what it was back in the 70s. I think in the 70s it had lots of lights and music and things moving around and stuff, but it didn't. Didn't unless unless that's just my seven year old memory, but yeah, it didn't. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't quite the same, was it? I just remember Sadly. the I just remember the uh, Bertie Bassett monster with an eye missing and the <laughs> the sil sil costume looking like it was in a state of decay, and they had Adric's badge in a case. The most alive thing was uh, Billy Piper's hoodie. Uh, because they had an exhibition of the new stuff. I think it was mm. when the new uh, <laughs> when the new Doctor Who had uh, launched, and uh, they had some stuff from the new series. Yeah, I remember looking at that hoodie and thinking, I don't remember wearing that. Is that just a hoodie? So, so I'm going to ask you this question before we go into this, right, Eddie? Your favourite Doctor and your favourite Doctor Who monster. Probably, uh, obviously, Tom Baker, I think. Uh, monster. I, mean, I like the Sea Devil. And I quite like the Perky ones, but they're not really my either. The Tom Baker, I think at the end of the Tom Baker era, I was losing interest in the programme then, because we were getting older then. So the age had a lot to do with it. I like them more now. Same question to you, Blighty. I'm a bit, I'm a bit torn on Favourite Doctor, because I, I think instinctively I would say Tom Baker... I suppose it's when Doctor Who kind of came alive because I was I was a bit too young for the per. Although I remember some of the Pertwee ones, I was a bit too young, and Tom Baker just came along at the right time when I was just really kind of waking up to Doctor Who, and he, he was only he did it for a long time as well, didn't he? So he almost did it throughout that period that I was interested in it, and then Peter Davison comes along, 
And I watch a bit of it, but then by the time Colin Baker, Colin Baker comes along, I'm thinking, oh, God, no, I'm just a bit bored. I'm doing other things. I would still say I like Doctor Who, but stop watching it. But I am torn. And I know you will react to this because you're not you're not a fan of it. I'm torn between him and Tennant, David Tennant. Oh. I, I do think Tennant did, Chris Freckleston did a good job, but I do think <laughs> David Tennant did the same thing that Tom Baker did. He kind of embraced the part. Through, through the prism of Timmy Mallet. Yeah, but you, that, you always say that, but there's one, ep- one in his uh, couple of, early couple of episodes, he's a bit manic, but then he calms down. But I do think Tennant kind of brought it alive. It would have been, int- I think, be interesting if after Christopher Eccleston, if they'd miscast it, what would have happened? What about Monster? Attempted to be really boring and say Daleks because they are, they are a great monster. They're an iconic monster, aren't they? Kind of shouty authoritarian figures, which are great because they they scare kids because they're like they're almost like teachers shouting everyone must obey them and do as they're told. They're kind of, they're like teachers in dustbins shouting at people. Do this, do that. And if you're a kid, that's possibly the most terrifying thing in the world. Something telling you to do stuff. And go, going back to the, that Doctor Who exhibition experience of seeing them in that cage, they had, a, had an effect on me. See, I, I have very vivid memories of the Pertwee uh, episodes, and I must have been very young watching them, and they made an impression on me. The one that particularly sticks in my mind, we've talked about the Sea Devils, but the one that sticks in my mind is the one with the Sontarian and his appearance in the silver suit and his face terrified me. You know, that <laughs> kind of leathery bald head terrified me. And it I think I equated yeah, it. Right. Yeah, like a, yeah, it's I equated it with uh, Ramsbottom the snake on the Sutty Show. And and that used to terrify me as well. Do you? <laughs> yeah, I remember them. Yeah, I was right on the snake. Utterly bizarre thing, <laughs> really. <laughs> it, it was like a leather snake, and yeah. the Sontarian's face reminded me of Ramsbottom the snake. That used to terrify <laughs> me. I'm sure there's a, a you know a, some psychoanalysis to be done there, but um, yeah, it used to it used to scare me to death. Well, I think. I suppose that that backs up your theory, doesn't it? Like the Sontarons, it, it's not a particularly. It, it doesn't move much the face, and it is just like a. I heard you say it's not like a potato head thing, isn't it? But somehow, it it is sort of yeah, frightening. A, a good another good example like the robots of death. Do you remember the robots of death? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, they were just like metal masks, just men, people wearing metal masks. But there's something about the design of them that was creepy and the way they carried themselves. There was, a, there was a creepiness. I think that was the thing with a lot of these monsters. It wasn't so much terrifying, but, but a creepiness to them. Hello, my name is Dave, and I have a little podcast called the Frankenstein RPG Podcast. And uh, in it, we undertake the truly awesome task of stitching together an RPG and the body parts of other games. Games which are all chosen by a group of enthusiasts. I'm no longer contractually obliged to call them experts, with the sole intention of attempting to make the ultimate fantasy role-playing game. That's ultimate in its broadest possible terms. With the heft of the rule books so far used, it's still the only game to give you a double hernia. Please listen to Frankenstein's RPG, available on all platforms, assuming we haven't broken them yet.
Okay, shall we look at the uh, Pyramids of Mars then? So the Pyramids of Mars was first broadcast in October and November 1975. And it was uh, between the planet of evil and the android invasion. And this was written by Stephen Harris. Okay, so let's uh, go into this and uh, you chip in as we go along because this uh, starts, doesn't it, with library footage of the pyramids and uh, we're invited into the tomb and stone is moved rather too easily to one side. (laughs) Supposed to keep the tomb robbers out, but quite (laughs) seems quite light. Don't don't use phallostyre in ancient Egyptians. That'll not keep them out, will it? (laughs) <laughs> and it's a, it's a tomb from the First Dynasty, and the eye of Horus begins to glow, causing the locals to flee. And the door slides open. Uh, Scarman, who is the explorer, is bathed in a green light, and he uh, rails in horror. It uh, cuts to the TARDIS, and the Doctor looks quite bored at this point, doesn't he? He's kind of Tom Baker. He's a bit bored and a bit grumpy, isn't he? He's kind of a grumpy. They're, they're all a bit grumpy, but... He can be a bit grumpy, ill-tempered, can't he? He's like staring into the middle distance with his hat at a jaunty angle. And uh, Sarah Jane comes in and she's been in the dressing-up box at the back of the TARDIS and she's got a Victorian frock on. The lovely Sarah Jane. You see, you didn't ask me, did you? Didn't ask me the best assistant, did you? The best companion. And you know, and I know why you didn't ask me, because you know the answer is <laughs> she is the best companion. Undisputed companion best companion ever it's it's quite interesting this one because it's a rare one where sarah jane plays the damsel in distress and she doesn't usually have that role does she no she's a bit she's a bit more plucky than you know than, than some of the uh, companions isn't she what i find interesting about this scene is that he reminds her that he's a time lord and he's 700 years old and mm. Is it why? Why does he do that? Because I mean, they've been together for quite a bit by that point, anyway. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that in um, the early. I think in the horror of Fang Rock, he says something about about that about oh, you've you've been alive for seven hundred years or something. It's not a bad innings. He's talking to himself at one point in the horror of Fang Rock. He does does a lot of that. It's like they're kind of resetting it almost, reinforcing what's going on for people. Because I think, I suppose it's like we, we've just been discussing, kids kids would have got older. Some people would have got older and stopped watching it when Tom Baker comes along. And and we were just, although I watched some of the Persway ones, I was getting more into it then. So I suppose that's what happens, isn't it? It's such a long-running series that people kind of drift in and out of it. So maybe they have to remind people every now and again because it's some some eight or nine-year-old who's just getting into it again or getting into it for the first time wondering what it's all about there's a disruption as the relative continuing uh, stabilizer fails that again and it brings upon a mental projection of a mask playing an electronic kazoo (laughs) that creates a great disturbance in the in the doctor and in, uh, in in sarah jane and they realise that they have materialised in the unit headquarters at the wrong time. Uh, it's in the old priory. A lot of Egyptian gear, isn't it? It's like... Um, and it's the 19... Is it? What is it? The turn of the 1911, is it? Something yeah, like, like Edwardian period, isn't it? Edwardian times, isn't it? Yeah. And it is quite... It's, I think it's 
quite atmospheric actually because it's that there's a lot of the, the Tom Baker era did quite a few of those where it was Victorian or Edwardian kind of gothic horror stuff you know the Egypt, e- Egyptology stuff and the sarcophaguses and those um, sarcophaguses are wider than they need to be but there's a reason for that isn't there? they look very wide <laughs> they're very they? big aren't they but there's a reason for that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they look like skips with lids don't they but there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Yeah. As well, find out. And so then it cuts to a man wearing a fez playing an organ, of course. That's right. Yeah. It's like Hammer House of Horror, isn't it? And the butler is listening at the door. He's obviously, obviously spooked, as he might well be, because he seems to be in the business of summoning some evil uh, spirit from beyond, beyond. And uh, he's visited by Dr. Warlock, who is looking for Professor Scarman, who we assume is the man yeah. who was exploring the tomb. Dr. Warlock. I mean, what kind of a name is that? Dr. Warlock. <laughs> what a name. Yeah, Warlock. Go and see him, would you? Got athlete's foot going down the list. Uh, yeah. Well, there's a warlock here. Should I go with him? To him yeah? Go with this warlock fella, yeah. He'll cure it. I'm sure he gives you a magic potion or something. And so, in odds gain, uh, the doctor gets out a key, but it's not any old key, is it? It's Mary Antoinette's key. Yeah. Another inconsistency with later episodes, but there we go. <laughs> I'm not blaming them for I mean, you know, not blaming them for inconsistency because this came first. I'm blaming the other lot. <laughs> and um, he's interrupted by the by the butler who uh, warns them the Egyptian has a temper of the devil. Sarah Jane and the doctor escape to an exterior shot. I always like how uh, it goes from the bright lights of indoors to slightly dull, yeah. <laughs> bleak yeah. outside. On location, on, on grainy film, yeah. Um, it Mick Jagger's house. Was it really? Mick Jagger's house, was it? Mick Jagger's house. So I bet it's not the first time an organ's been played there. <laughs> so they do a kind of great show marks, walk, don't they, under, a, uh, under the window and uh, listen to the evil discussion taking place between the uh, Egyptian fella and Dr Warlock who uh, declares that an ancient power has arisen. The high one will walk among us. Yeah. And uh, he ends up pulling a gun, doesn't he? Pulling a gun on the on uh, Dr. Warlock. And then what happens? He shoots him, doesn't he? He shoots shoot him. He shoots him, but the the doctor springs behind him with his scarf, with his scarf, wraps his oh. scarf around him and pulls him away, but Warlock still gets shot. It's quite action packed. The the opening episode's quite action packed. A few people get people getting shot and killed. It's... And Warlock's bleeding, isn't he? He's actually bleeding. Tea time, just off the grandstand, yeah. and he's bleeding. Yeah. No, no, they didn't pull the punches in those days. Did <laughs> so the Egyptian then opens up the sarcophagus. The, the servicer is revealed. What do you think of these guys then? The mummies. mummies. I think they stack up with oh, your that's... theory of ridiculous and sinister at the same time blokes in big suits aren't they with bandages around them i suppose they are they are there is a sinister quality to them isn't ridiculous, it? But it works. Yeah. if you've not seen it they look a bit like if you imagine boba fett wrapped in bandages i suppose they tap into horror movie the mummy's curse kind of stuff don't they that's really what they do what they're playing around with isn't it so they're controlled by this uh, ring with a flashing <laughs> light on they, they actually get to the scarman brothers 
house, don't they? And it's Mr. Bronson from Grange Hill. It's isn't Mr. It? Mr. Bronson, yeah, it is Mr. Mr. Bronson. Which you know, it wouldn't have been funny then because it's just free Bronson, wasn't it? You know, he hasn't been Mr. Bronson at that point, but his free Bronson career. But yeah, it's Mr. Bronson. And in his spare time, he's been creating a Marconi scope. I always think he lives at the in the cottage, doesn't he? His, his brother lives in the big house. What went on there? What's going on there? Why is his brother living? Scarman lives in the big house, doesn't he? His yeah. brother lives in the uh, what? The cottage, little little groundsman's cottage. A bit of an odd relationship there, isn't it? One of them got Mick Jagger's house. The other one got a little <laughs> cottage. He never never explains that. I suppose it doesn't need to, does it? But to, to a grown up mind, I was thinking this is an odd setup, isn't it? He's looking at his brother's house through the window every day. Come on, brother lives in a mansion. I live in a porky cottage, building a building an amateur radio thing. And his Marconi scope is just so happens to be picking up a signal from Mars. That's right, as they do. And it just so happens that the vo- noise from Mars is the same noise that Pac-Man makes when he's going around the maze, isn't it? <laughs> and it's this point where we get a bit of exposition, isn't it? So uh, beware of Sutek, who was killed by Horus. The doctor's saying that this is the biggest threat that the world has ever faced. I, I, I think we as the audience are a bit like Sarah Jane at this point. We're not quite convinced, are we, that these fellas who look like quarterbacks wrapped in bandages yeah. and the man with a fez are the greatest risk to <laughs> humanity. Particularly if you've been knocking around with the, the doctor for a bit and you've met the Daleks and the Cybermen and all the other people who've been trying to take over the world. You just say, blow it with a fez. So then we're going to... We, we go to the sarcophagus, which has all the uh, fancy bright lights. Fellow with the fez does some ritual in front of it, yeah. and see, this is this is Cthulhu esque, isn't it? So, if you want yeah. to put Cthulhu in your game, he 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 belongs in your Pope Cthulhu yeah. adventures, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. The whole thing is up to now. It is very Cthulhu, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. So, what we understand so far is that the signals coming from Mars. It's disrupted the uh, TARDIS, interrupted it, and he starts to summon something from the sarcophagus, and out of it comes Arthur Brown, Arthur Brown in a in a motorcycle helmet and big leather gloves. Doesn't he emerges? <laughs> yeah, that's well, the best, that's the best scene of the whole thing. Well, I still don't know they did the um, the smoke coming out of his feet as he walked along the carpet. As he puts his hand on that guy's shoulders, with it, I am Sutek, I bring the gift of death to humanity. I mean, come on, that's fantastic, isn't it? If you're going to be part of a death cult, it comes with the territory, doesn't it? You're going to get killed. And- yeah, don't join. Just don't join them. Yeah, it's not a good idea, is it? It's just it's a mess whether you're going to be one of the dead people or not. You know, if you're in some kind of death cult like that. After the cliffhanger, it is revealed that the man in the motorcycle helmet is actually Marcus Scarman. Yes. And he's looking a bit paler than we saw him last time. Questionable whether he needs he needs the motorcycle helmet at all. He don't put it on again, does he? He comes <laughs> out in that costume. But after that, he's just like a, a creepy bloke <laughs> with a pale face, isn't he? Why is he why is he wearing the helmet and all the gear when he steps out of that? Sarcophagus. I don't. It's never really explained why is it. 
he doesn't appear in it again. He just that's gone. He just wanders around in it. It's like a tuxedo, doesn't he? And looking 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 a bit like a very scary scary version of Kenneth Williams in Carry On Screaming. They start me moving the Coptic jars with the intention of creating a force field around the, the place and they've got this scheme which is later revealed to be some missile to do something something destroy the world something something i'm not quite sure what complete conspiracy is but reading between the lines <laughs> it don't look good for humanity no it's explained later i think isn't it with a, it's a prison isn't it on he's imprisoned on mars isn't he Sutek? isn't it the missile to destroy the yeah, I don't know, to destroy something to free him. Yeah, something that will free him. Yeah, maybe it's not explained. What, <laughs> Carry on. what, what the doctor says, though, is that it, it is actually across the um, universe, the Asarians uh, are known for their destructive qualities, aren't they? And uh, mm. Horus uh, managed to bring the battle to Earth and ended up, imprisoning him on the on, on Mars that would that's the idea yeah, it's, it's very it, it's very chariot of the gods isn't it? Eric von whatever his name is dark you know whatever he's called it's very much that isn't it that the Egyptian gods are these alien race this alien race that's the that's the gist of part of it isn't it and that was very popular at this time wasn't it very popular in the 70s primitive people didn't have any imagination they just <laughs> they couldn't they couldn't make things up like we can. They had to actually meet an alien to, to decide to draw it on a cave wall. And um the doctor tries to intervene, doesn't he, by he acknowledges that this is some kind of tunnel, the sarcophagus represents some kind of tunnel uh, to Mars, and the TARDIS key gets involved and he does a great big writhing pertwiesque eyes popping clutching his head as he is thrown to the floor by this this whatever it is and uh, he's he's quite injured and so um Scarman's brother and Sarah Jane drag him to a priest hall while there's a prolonged business with a, a gamekeeper being chased by the um bandaged quarterbacks in oven gloves a, uh, yeah the gamekeeper's chased around for no no possible plot reason He's killed in the end, but he runs around. He's quite a sprightly fella, and these things lumber after him and manage to catch him. Yeah. They manage to catch him. How did they catch him? He's, he's quite quick, isn't he? Must have the most original death I've seen on a doctor. He's been squashed between the two chests. Yeah. Between, between two mummies, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is, well, I said, like, there is a little bit of the carry on screaming about it, isn't there? Actually, places. He rewrote it, I think, several times before everybody died about halfway through because they weren't happy with it. I think it was Robert Holmes. He weren't, they weren't happy, or the director weren't happy with the script, so they kind of chopped it off, killed off loads of people, and then reset it. For the- that is interesting, actually, that you say that because when I watched it, I did that is I did think that. I thought, with the gamekeeper, you know, joking apart, why is he in it? He bumps into the force field, doesn't he? But it's it has no bearing on the. Mm. Plot. I think he shoots that the, he shoots uh, Scarman, doesn't he? But even that, he doesn't doesn't kill it. It just reinforces the fact that he's like a slightly undead kind of character who can't be shot. And and you're right about Scarman's brother as well. They kill him off, and it's a bit unsatisfactory, isn't it? It feels a bit odd. Why have they killed him off? Because he's he's quite a good character in it, and he seems quite significant. 
And then one of the mummies, mummy strangles him in his, his cottage, doesn't he? And he, you think, well. Before Scarman's brother is killed, going to TARDIS, and the doctor seeks to prove his point. Sarah Jane says, quite rightly, well, let's go. Let's go back to 1980, get me back to where I should be in 1980, and leave it. And because we know what happens, you know, he, he doesn't succeed. He doesn't destroy the earth. He takes the TARDIS to 1980. She opens the door, and it's a desolate, Britain is a wasteland. It does kind of play around with the idea that time's not fixed and stuff like that. Kind of interesting ideas for kids. You ask why did um, Scarman's brother get killed? I think it's because he has the worst line in the whole thing. (laughs) He deserved to die for that line. I say it is like that novelist chap, Mr Wells. But I don't say I disagree. I think that's what makes it so frustrating when he is killed because he's a quite a good character he's like this edwardian amateur scientist isn't he who meets a man from the future a man from another planet who has all this knowledge and, and stuff and they kind of connect in somewhere and and he's he's all right he's scarman's brother's okay he's a nice guy he's it would have been nice to see him survive to the end say goodbye to the doctor and think he's had this amazing experience but they did kill him off. Well, why? Does uh, the Doctor not make the point that all of it's irrelevant anyway? The lives of these people who are being killed by the oven gloves, it doesn't matter because there's something greater at stake. Well, he does, doesn't he? And I think Sarah Jane says, does she say something like, oh, you're, that's... Oh, you're not being... And, you're, and he goes, human? Yeah, that's right. He makes the point. Well, and it goes back to what you said, the reinforcing the idea he's not human, he's an alien. It's a reinforcement of the things... That have always been there, but now we're going to reinforce it for people. Now it starts getting complicated now because this is where they've got to try and sort it out, haven't they? They've built this um, greenhouse-shaped pyramid. Rather missile. Inside it, there's the missiles inside, isn't it? They hatch a plan where the Doctor disguises himself as one of these uh, services. The capture, unwrap it. Unwrap it, and underneath it looks like... um, one of those uh, stands you get in a shop with books on. <laughs> the lamp stand. And they, they wrap up the doctor and the doctor says, I'm going to mingle with them, uh, mingle with the mummies. I found that a very odd moment in this one because I can't think of many episodes of Doctor Who where he disguises himself as a monster. That's a kind of... Because yeah. he doesn't really engage in subterfuge, does he? he? He tends to stride up to the bad guys and go, hello, I'm a Time Lord. Would you like a jelly baby? I dare you to shoot me. They don't shoot him. So he, never, he never disguises himself, does he? He just strides in. It's an odd. It's slightly out of character, isn't it? I don't know. So, so to extend the distraction, uh, whilst uh, so Jane can get a shot, he actually ends up in Sutex prison, doesn't he? he uh, the doctor enters uh, Sutex uh, prison. And we see um, Sutex eye to eye, Lord Buckethead sat on his throne. <laughs> yeah. He's very good. He works really well. I think Sutex quite creepy. You know, yeah. Actor, I, I, think I, as, I think as a kid, I found it creepy. It is only a man in a mask, but. When he takes his mask off, that's when he looks silly. It looks like something out of Pipkins. 
Remember Pipkin? He looks like Harley hair, like an evil Harley hair or something, doesn't he? A black papier-mâché Pipkin's head, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you wonder how those ears fitted in the mask. Yeah, they don't. There's no way that head fits in that mask. No way. <laughs> but we're getting ahead of ourselves because the Doctor is bathed in green light. Ahead of ourselves. Very, Very good. good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, but it, he's in there. He's in the. He's in the prison with um, Sutek, and um, it gives enough time for the missile to be blown up and the plot to be thwarted. And this is. The, I think this is a great scene here, where when in the prison, the Doctor reminds us of he is the embodiment of pure evil. If we weren't convinced before by what he was saying, by the desolation. He reminds us that Sadus, Satan, Suta, mm. manifests across the universe and it appears in many, many forms. At that point, it, it kind of underlines the fact that this guy is really, really bad, despite the fact that all he's doing is sitting down, talking to him. His reasoning, is really, really, his reasoning Suta's reasoning, is very, very clear. just leads destruction. I leave death and destruction wherever I walk, because to me that is good. It doesn't yeah. have any fancy take over the universe or anything silly. Just says I like destroying things. That's his name, isn't it? So take the destroyer. I think he's a fantastic villain. Is a Cthulhu. Uh, Lovecraftian cosmic horror humans and even the doctor is just a mere termite to him is insane because you know my you know my gripe with those kind of villains is why they're bothering why you're bothering destroying everything why just go for an easy life if you're an all-powerful villain but the doctor does give a good explanation doesn't he where he says that Sutek destroys things because he fears that more primitive life forms will one day become more powerful than him and threaten him. So it's a way of stamping out life because he's sort of paranoid and fearful that he won't be all powerful one day because something else will come along and replace him. And actually they go, oh, well, well done, Doctor Who. You've explained that's a good, that's a good rationale for some villain. Many things have villains like Sutek, but they never explain why they're doing what they're doing. They're just yeah. evil and bad and want to destroy things. But actually, there is a the Doctor presents you with a rationale as to why he's behaving like that. That's quite clever, actually. Doctor Who is he's full of little things like that, peppered through it for all the sort of silliness and paper mastery heads. There's lots of little ideas in it every now and again where you kind of can be quite thought provoking. A little bit of cut above your usual pulpy science fiction hogwash. Your evil is my good. With his plan foiled to uh, use the missile to do something, 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 and release something, something, and reverse something else, what he decides to do instead is send the doctor back because, of course, the TARDIS is there and you can use the TARDIS to release him. And he has to send the, ta- the doctor back because, of course, the controls are isometric. They can yeah. only be worked by the doctor. So the doctor is now under the thrall of Sutek and he returns through the time tunnel back to the Edwardian Priory, looking like a zombie. <laughs> and so they lead the TARDIS to Mars. And then it's... It, well, I say Mars, it's more like uh, the set from the pantomime Aladdin, isn't it? it, it they'll end up in it. It's like a cave. Yeah, there's a magic lamp somewhere in there if you look hard enough. Yeah, this is this is the bit where it goes like, um, do you remember the adventure game? That's on Britbox as well, the adventure yeah. game, which is like a Moira Stewart. Well, it, 
it, it turns into it turns into the adventure game, or or essentially it turns into D and D, doesn't it? They're like yes. in this dungeon where there's there's like puzzles and tri- tricks. There's these two mummies, are the old one of them always lies and one of them tells the truth, kind of thing. And you think this is a bit odd, a bit strange. This where does this come from? But you know. they go, they get through the series of tests, don't they? Through the through the dungeons because they, yeah. they met with servitors, so the quarterbacks in bandages are wearing bikinis, gold lamy bikinis, to indicate that they're on the Horus side, aren't they? They're, they're the good guys, yeah. They're yeah. the good guys. But are they the good guys? Because the doctor kind of throws into doubt whether they're really as bad mm. as each other, doesn't he? So the Horus lads turn up with these gold lamy bikinis. Off he goes, Sutek, down the time tunnel, making his way to Earth. But there's the time factor. The Doctor gets in the TARDIS and he arrives two minutes before he gets there. And then what does he do? You explain to me, both of you, how he files the plot. I, I re-watched that episode about two hours ago. I don't think I can tell you. And Sutek starts to arrive as he comes in this time tunnel, but then he stops him. He tracks the top of the control panel that comes from nowhere. And he just kind of hovers in the time tunnel so before being finished. And he resets the lodestone to, is it like 7,000 years in the future? Because he calculates that's the lifespan of the average Asarian. Yeah. So, yeah. so he's trapped for the rest of his days. And, and the then fa- a fire breaks out there. A fire breaks out. Like some kind of power overload. And uh, a fire breaks out. And there's, there's a bit of a callback then by Sarah Jane because she's doing the time travel thing because she says, this place burnt down. We know this place burnt down, so let's just get out of here. And they let it they let it burn down, don't they? Because yeah. that's what's supposed to happen. And that's well, it. It works. It works. The story does work. Recently on Sunday, we played a game, didn't we? So what can we learn about Doctor Who and role-playing? Because you would think, wouldn't you, that Doctor Who is the perfect role-playing setup because you can set it any place, any time. And as we've learned, you don't have to worry too much about the continuity of history. You can play around with all those kind of ideas. Yet, I don't think any of us have actually played a Doctor Who game. And even though there was a Doctor Who game available, we didn't play it. Why is that? Well, I, I think, like you said, it is a perfect medium for role-playing games. Drop any characters into any scenario, whether it's Wild West, Space Station, Victorian Horror, Medieval, Modern Day, whatever you fancy, you could drop them in, into that scenario and anybody could play that. But as a game, I think the weakest part of the Doctor Who game is Doctor Who himself. Being all powerful, I don't think it actually works with him. If I was running a game, I would take an out of it. I would have it was almost sapphire and steel-like, where just a couple of characters would drop into a, a, a scene and run with it from there. I think the Doctor being so all powerful and wise and I don't think it works. I think it, it's difficult to play that, and it's very unbalanced in it, in it with a group of players. The temptation, I suppose, when you play in Doctor Who, the role-playing game, is well, it's not really the temptation. It's almost like an obligation is to replicate the TV show to some extent. 
But in, in some ways, the way Doctor Who often works is, it's like what he does with Sutek, isn't it? He, he meets, he goes to confront Sutek and there's this conversation, isn't there? Sutek gives him, it torches him a little bit with his green light, but there's this kind of conversation that takes place. And sometimes you think, would that be fun role-playing that? And maybe, maybe not. So so many, I think it's because so many role-playing games do involve direct action, don't they? As in doing something about it one way or another. Whereas Doctor Who, he does fix things and he does defeat monsters, but it's always in a roundabout way, isn't it? Maybe not in the way you would do it in a role-playing game. I think it would be great running into something like Spine Bandit to prove mm. something just bouncing around. <laughs> and just getting up to all sorts of action, I think there's too much emphasis in Doctor Who on talking. If you wanted to do it that way, I suppose you could have like a unit crew, couldn't you? And all associated with you uh, mm. and having the, you know, under the control of the brigadier and have the Time Lord or do- the Doctor as a kind of a pa- patron telling you what the mission is. I mean, what's, what would be appealing to yeah. me is the monsters and using the range of monsters. Uh, I, I think yeah. that's what's attractive about it. I mean, we, we've tried it, haven't we? And I think the uh, the Doctor Who role-playing game does try and accommodate some of the quirks of, of, of the TV series, and it gives you a lot of range, but it puts a lot of demand on the players, I think, to come up with uh, reversing the Lordstone to a time trajectory uh, and the reverse <laughs> polarity of, of 7,000 years. It, it To do all that kind of thing in a gamey way is difficult isn't it? it puts a lot of pressure on people yeah and i suppose that's what i, I mean really that it, it, it doctor who you the plots tend to run like that but what do you give players do you do you have to can players just come up with stuff like that and we go with it i suppose you can do that um or are those things set there for the players to put together like a puzzle that they've got to put together there's a way of defeating this monster but the games master builds in all these elements that if you tie them together you can go ah right we can do this but that puts a lot of pressure on a games master then doesn't it mm. to to put all that into a game to there to be found how would how would Sutek have been defeated if it wasn't Doctor Who if you imagine the Pyramids of Mars but imagine it being Cthulhu or some other game how would Sutek have been defeated? He probably wouldn't have been defeated in the way the Doctor defeated him, even if you did have a time machine. Well, you'd blow up the thing, wouldn't you, the sarcophagus? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> you'd take more of a... But but if you do things like that, that's not Doctor Who. That's not no. how Doctor Who works, is it? No. I mean, for example, when we played it the other week, I played Sarah Jane. That is lovely. I did enjoy it. But <laughs> um, I played Sarah Jane, and I, I'm conscious as I'm playing her that there's Benton, and as uh, Steve, Steve was, was playing the Brigadier, Sarah Jane wouldn't ever pick up the gun and shoot the master with it, would she? She wouldn't do that. I could do as a player, but I wouldn't I wouldn't, because Sarah Jane doesn't do that. And it felt a bit odd. I'm not saying it wasn't enjoyable, but it felt strange from a role-playing perspective that as a player, your agency is hindered a bit by complying with the style of the TV show, I suppose is what I'm trying to say in a rather roundabout way. It's like anything, when you go play a game that is set in a, in a book or a novel, you feel obliged, don't you, to follow the, <laughs> the actual canon of the actual game. Yeah. Get rid of it. The things are the best things. They're the monsters, aren't they? Go back to yeah. the 1970s to fight the Zygons. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you must have yeah. Them. 
And I suppose you can you can invent your own time lord in the game, can't you? Yeah. yeah. Invent your own, which is I suppose what you would do. Yeah. And then you could invent a invent a companion that suits your style of play, you know. But yeah, I agree with you. Let's go back to the seventies and fight the Zygons. Somewhere in the seventies there's a little lad with his snorkel jacket inside out uh, yeah. trying to find a friend. And I'd like to go back and reassure him. Being uh, hunted by librarians. <laughs> Go and fight the librarians, Grail Evil Library. They're more fear frightening than the Zygons. <laughs> the Doctor Who role playing game was an enjoyable one shot that I'd like to return to sometime. During the course of the adventure, the Doctor was wrestling with a stretch Armstrong that was doing a half Nelson around his neck. The Brigadier and Benton were having an all out war with action men and a mob of tiny tears dolls, and Sarah Jane was grappled by the nesting consciousness on the nature table. All good fun. I was using the supplement for the third Doctor that Cubicle 7 brought out for the 50th anniversary of the series, and they made everything backward compatible with previous editions. It's very light rule set, and the story point economy works really well and it's very much focused on recreating the stories of the television program it won't appeal to everyone as it doesn't have many of the gamist elements one of the players said that it was the closest that he'd been to a let's pretend i know what he means that said i can't think of a better system for emulating the experience of being in the world of doctor who and i can't say better than that the one shot club is one of the monthly features that's available to backers of the podcast. Thank you to everyone who's listened, written a comment, liked, shared, told a friend about what we're doing. We really appreciate it. One of the best things that we're doing at the moment is a monthly book club, which now has an American East Coast version for those who can't make the first Sunday of the month at 9.30am British Summertime. If you're interested in taking part or you would like the details of our Discord server, then leave a message on the site, thegrognardfiles.com, or on Twitter, at thegrognardfile. Thank you to all those new backers who joined us for the first time. I'll do some individual shout-outs next time when I have a bit more space. Some games come and go, while there's some that never leave you. Next time, we'll be returning to an old favourite, Call of Cthulhu with a very special guest, in a two-part episode, which will include the story of when we tried to frighten ourselves to death in a caravan in Morecambe to the sound of Genesis. Until then, adios amigos. Adios.